Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. I'm Julian Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So, Julia, can you tell me, tell our listeners what's happening in Washington, D.C. this week? What's happened over the past couple of days? What is everybody talking about? Well, everybody is talking about the possibility for a new Supreme Court justice after last week, Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. This was eagerly awaited by liberals it was contextualized by the, what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who did not retire during Obama's term in office and then died very shortly uh, before the end of, of Trump's term, allowing Donald Trump, a Republican, to replace one of the most prominent liberals on the court. So Breyer's retirement was very welcome news in, in liberal circles. And then it's become a really controversial topic in, I guess, in Washington, out here in the provinces, certainly, Um it's certainly been prominent in the news because during the campaign, Biden had promised to nominate a black woman to the court. Um, there has never been a black woman on the court. There have only been five women on the Supreme Court total. Um, and it's not like demographics have never played a role in the way that justices are selected by presidents. But this has led to a bunch of questions about the role that race and gender and characteristics play in selecting people in positions of power, what that has looked like historically in this country. Spoiler alert, not very diverse in terms of who has had access to positions of power. There is now a roiling controversy on the Twitters about someone who was working at Georgetown, not a faculty member, but who had a kind of a fellowship position, who tweeted about how this wasn't going to be the most qualified person. And that person, as of right now, has been, I think, suspended for those comments. So there's been a lot of questions about this. And the Supreme Court is actually considering affirmative action so that's been one of the angles of controversy. Then there was a brief storm, and I know I saw you tweeted about this, James, and you tweeted something about Senate procedure after that that I kind of glanced at and figured I'd ask you later, where people were asking, is it possible for Republicans to block this nomination? It seems like mostly the consensus is no. There's also the question about the Democrats' razor-thin margin in the Senate and what that means for confirmation or whether Manchin and Cinema might exact revenge for how mean liberals have been to them online. I've heard that floated around. So although this is likely to be a pretty routine situation in the sense that it is a liberal justice being replaced by a Democratic president, so it doesn't represent any kind of change, balance of power change on the court. And it's also the case that to the extent we now think of the court as being divided ideologically and we talk about it the same way we talk about partisan divisions in Congress, it's a 6-3 conservative court that won't change. But at the same time, there's, you know, there's all these little pockets of controversy. And it's, I think, to me, pretty unclear which direction this will take. Well, I'd like to dive into this issue and, and talk about it with you and Lee in three kind of major buckets. You know, I want to start with the, the general, why do we even have a court? question, which I think a lot of people probably gloss right over. I think then it makes sense to talk about the politics of this particular confirmation process and how we think it may unfold. And then in the end, we can just call that our mystery grab 
bag. What's behind door number three? I don't want to give away the whole show right up front. But Lee, as I'm looking at this, confirmation process debates for Supreme Court justices always strike me as contradictory, or at least they highlight the contradictions in how we think about politics. And if you look at the court and you think about the court, most people would say the court's not supposed to be a political body. The court's supposed to be apolitical. But then we talk about them, as Julia just said, and I do this as well, in terms of a 6-3 conservative split, or we talk about our confirmation process and groups will spend millions of dollars to try to influence who gets on to the court in these positions of power. So on one hand, it's like by our actions and our statements, we acknowledge that it matters. It matters both in a kind of outcome sense in terms of what the people that are there are going to do, but also that the court itself matters because you can change what it decides. But that sounds like a political body to me. It doesn't sound like a, a legal body per se. What do you what what do you think, Lee? I mean, why do we even have a court? Am I wrong here? What do you think? I'm gonna let you all in on a little secret. The court is political. Stop it. It's <laughs> Don't tell too many people. I mean, of course the court is political. Court has always been political. But I mean, there, there is this charade in American politics of certain things being above politics. It's the anti-politics, anti-partisan, non-partisan, independent expertise fetish that infuses our institutions, goes back to the to the framers, re-articulated through the whole progressivism idea of independent expertise, that, that there's like some some truth because like there was some moment in which like the constitution was handed down from on high on on stone tablets and has like some permanent meaning. I mean the whole the whole thing is 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 an absurd charade. And here we have a Supreme Court that certainly is is one of the most powerful courts in advanced democracies, uh, has, has ability to basically override the legislature, and people sit on it for a lifetime. So, of course, these decisions are incredibly fraught because whoever gets appointed to the, to the court could be a justice for 40 years. And the whole thing is, is just... It's just such an insane charade, and we're going to spend so much time on it. And, you know, I mean, perhaps we should. Yeah. So you know how, so that's how I feel. Right. I mean, don't be shy. I mean, I mean, we, we should, given given how, how, how the court is, but like, I mean, if you were to design a Supreme Court, I mean, you wouldn't design it this way at all. I mean, first of all, many people have said, and we've had this debate many times, you wouldn't have lifetime appointments. That's ridiculous, given this, you know. And you wouldn't, I mean, my proposal would be, uh, here's, here's my crazy proposal, 51 justices, and each case is heard by a random draw of nine justices. So you don't know what the, I mean, because the problem is all, all this litigation, then people are bringing it with this expectation of what's going to appeal to who and you know, whether or not to bring it. There's this whole tremendous gamesmanship over activist legislation. So like, I, I think if we got rid of that and it was more unpredictable, 
Now, there'd probably be a lot more uh, focus on precedent, and but also, uh, you know, you could you could lose big, you could win big. Who knows? Like, let's let's not let's not gamble here. Whereas now we kind of know, like with all the abortion cases, like we kind of know where things are going, and it just feels incredibly depressing because it feels like we have these elections at state and local and, and national level to make like people make policy, and then it just winds up a bunch of of lifetime justices wind up deciding policy. And no wonder we feel cynical and frustrated about our politics. I'm sensing a little frustration in your voice, Lee. I'm just picking up on that. And maybe we can unpack that as we go throughout this episode. Yeah, I think. <laughs> but I, you know, if you've heard any law school professor talk about the court, there's they're generally going to come down to one of two views. And most likely it's just one these days. And one is that it's the court's just one of three branches and it's kind of in the fray itself, right? Which is kind of lends itself to your political body type notion because after all, it's all politics. It's either politics or violence. And the court's certainly part of the former. Another notion though, is that the court is sitting above the fray. Kind of imagine nine rulers in their robes up on Mount Olympus, looking down at the happenings of men on the plains of Troy and then getting involved every now and then when they decide they want to. And that's certainly, I think, the dominant view and I think one of the things that complicates our view of the courts today and makes it harder for us to appreciate what the proper role of the court is, and the court is very important. I, I do think that it's important to have a national judiciary. I think the Supreme Court is extraordinarily important. But we attribute the court, we give the court the power to basically be a ruler. We say the court is the one who decides, and this is on both sides. This isn't just, just on the Democratic side or just on the Republican side. And that basically throws out the separation of powers. When the court can determine the boundaries of the government and what it can and can't do, that's a ruler in my book. And I'm reminded by, you know, I, I do have a tendency to, to read some quotes here. And as you were talking, I, Lincoln's first inaugural comes up. And he talks about how that some people assume that constitutional questions are to be decided by the Supreme Court. And he says that such decisions must be binding in any case upon the parties to a suit as to the object of that suit, right? And that the other branches should give those decisions a lot of consideration because it, they're important. But he says the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, right? And so think about that. In the 1970s, you alluded to this, Lee, there was a push to litigate all of our disagreements, to go through that process. Because if you can't pass a, a bill in Congress, if you can't amend the Constitution, well, what's the next best thing? It's, well, let's just find a sympathetic plaintiff somewhere, or let's find a sympathetic party, and then let's go through the process. And maybe we can get the court, if we got the right president in office and the right Congress to confirm them, to basically say the Constitution doesn't mean X, it means Y. And so, in essence, we are pushing, the people they are pushing more and more issues to the court, and we're looking to the court to basically rule us. And then we scratch our heads and we wonder why these confirmation processes are so fraught and so so intense. Julia, what do you what do you think? I mean, are you are you as frustrated as Lee? Do you want to unpack what Lee was saying? I think I am maybe in a slightly different I mean, maybe in a slightly different way. 
The way I think about the court putting in an historical context to really, um, really kind of oversimplify it is that I think one of the key roles that the court has played is to be an arbiter of federalism and to decide on these kind of deeper constitutional questions that you know, have has divided the the two major parties and have um, divided the branches. Obviously, that's not the only set of cases that have come before the court. But it, when I think about the kind of the story of constitutional development, that's the one that I think of. And a lot of these... Julie, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I mean, just to kind of emphasize that point, the New Jersey plan at the Federal Convention of 1787, we kept one part of that, and that was the Supremacy Clause. The Supremacy Clause, it says that the Constitution and all of the laws made pursuant to it are supreme to the state laws. And then it's the courts that enforce that, right? So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Judicial review vis-a-vis the states and federalism is a very real and vital thing. Yeah. You know, our classic kind of intro to American government, McCullough v. Maryland, it's the the Steamboats case, which I now can't remember the name of, but it's like one of kind of the early cases about arbitrating the role of the federal government and the states in, in regulating. Um, and then you know, it Dred Scott is is essentially about federalism, right? Is about the way the states relate to each other. And then moving this into my actual point, which is about the 20th century. The 20th century turns out to be a really exceptional time, I think, in American political history, in which we have the set of expectations that develop about kind of neutral courts, parties fall out of fashion, a neutral administrative state, and that at the same time, kind of corresponds with the growth of the federal government and with this kind of cultural acceptance of that. And that creates an opportunity, I think, for, as you said, people who are venue shopping and, and specifically liberals who are kind of venue shopping and these kinds of different rights movements. So we see the NAACP. We've had Megan Francis on the, the podcast to talk about some of her work. And she has some wonderful work about how the NAACP kind of came upon using the courts as a strategy after trying other types of strategies. And that ultimately is what shapes the way that that movement uses the courts going into Brown v. Board in the 50s. But then you get this whole sort of courts rights revolution. Um, We've also had Steve Tellis on the podcast, who's written extensively about the conservative legal movement. So I think you see conservatives view this also, they see what liberals have been able to do and get really organized around using the courts and not just filing lawsuits, but (laughs) creating lists of judges. And so I think that's sort of where we're at. The court has historically been an arbiter of federalism. Those trends have largely tracked with kind of larger ideological, cultural, and political trajectories around questions about the size of the federal government. And then in the in the growth of polarization and interest group development, you get, you know, what we have now, which is, I think, both sides having very well-developed legal strategies in terms of filing lawsuits and also in terms of having groups of potential justices for the Supreme Court and for other federal courts, state-level courts that are rooted in these ideological sides and movements. And that's kind of where we are. That's kind of where we are right now. So I'm, I am really frustrated because I see a role for a constitutional court and for a kind of constitutional review of legislation. But at the same time, I see, I mean, here where is where I think we agree, James, that the court is a ruler, but it's not that the court is a ruler. The court is a tool of conservative minority rule. At least that's the case for the Supreme Court. And I think that's going to be a really destabilizing force going forward in American politics. If it if it appears, I mean, I think people care less about the procedural element of it, but 
when the government is unable to do anything or has policies and regulations and things that people don't like, the idea that this is coming from an unelected branch of government is not going to enhance the legitimacy of those decisions or enhance people's sense of investment in the system and feeling like the system reflects and represents their views. So that's that's sort of my perspective there. You know what I think about minority rule and majority rule, but I will say that the court is able to rule per se, because I think we let it rule. I mean, if you go back to Lincoln in the first inaugural and to Dred Scott and this notion of, you know, I love that what you're describing as the arbiter of federalism. And then today we have almost the arbiter of the separation of powers, which is decidedly not in the constitution. But instead of exercising these other powers that Lee has mentioned in terms of expanding the size of the court, changing how it operates and doing other sorts of things, basically we people say, oh, well, woe is me. We need to win the presidency so that we can then put our people on the court so that we can rule. And it's a very odd thing, I think, uh, because – if you don't like what the court says and you think it's unconstitutional, and if you're in Congress or you're in the White House, then why on earth are you listening to them? Right? I mean, ultimately, I think that's the kind of dispute that the people have to resolve as the arbiters of the Constitution. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that, Lee? Well, I mean, I, I've been thinking as we've been having this conversation about about the, the whole activist litigation movement and the way in which so many organizations have oriented their efforts around legal strategies. And the fact that a lot of members of Congress, particularly the Senate, are lawyers. So there's this whole kind of culture around the law. America is a very litigious society. And this idea that there is, you know, some, some way to arbitrate these differences that is somehow fair and impartial. This comes back to the, the point that I was making originally. And, and I don't think there is, certainly not in these polarized times, probably never. Now, you know, there, there's two ways you can think about the, uh, the role of the court, I think, given that. One is to say that, well, you know, the court eventually responds to public opinion. And that was, I think, the standard way that a lot of political scientists viewed the court. And, you know, I think some people might still say, oh, well, you know, the court is concerned about its own legitimacy. So at some point, the court's not going to get that far beyond public opinion. But I think something has, has really changed tremendously about the role of the courts in the last several decades. And some of that is is partisan polarization so that there's a clear liberal democratic alignment, a clear conservative Republican alignment that makes it easier to kind of be uh, know where the judges are going to stand. Uh, there's the rise of the conservative le legal movement and now the, the sort of American constitutional society, liberal political movement. Uh, and you know, at the same time, we have this fiction of, of the courts as nonpartisan. And so it is something that, that I wonder if we hadn't put so much energy uh, around litigation strategies, and by we, I mean all, all, the, all the groups, all the foundations, all, all the actors, and had instead invested that into on-the-ground organizations, grassroots power, and, you know, trying to, to, to shape public opinion more, more directly, that feels like a like a much healthier vision of democracy 
to me, rather than saying that, oh, there, there's these, you know, principles on high that these justices are going to respond to. And you citizens have no role to play in that. Uh, we're just going to let these expert litigators deal with it and figure it out. And I wonder how much of the collective powerlessness that we all feel has to kind of do with that approach to resolving our differences over the course of, of many, many decades. It may not be good for democracy. It's also not good for just lasting change. You know, if, if Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King had thought about politics like we do today and thought about the court like we do today, then they would have stopped after Brown v. Board of Education and Eisenhower sending in the guard. What else do you need? You got the Supreme Court, you got the presidency, you got the National Guard. But they realized and they recognized, and all of the other people who are active in the civil rights movement recognize that it ultimately takes politics with a small p, right? And it takes bargaining and negotiating and pushing and, and arguing with one another to ultimately get some sort of stable compromise, right? And the court, the the litigation strategy doesn't give you that. It doesn't give you an opportunity to reconcile losers in a debate to the outcome. There's no struggle. And if there's no struggle, there's no compromise. There's only an imposition of a decision from on high. And this doesn't lead to lasting kind of healthy policy change, but it does have one thus far lasting impact on our politics. And that is the confirmation process, which has gotten increasingly, increasingly bitter and nasty. And so, Julia, how do we expect this confirmation process to go, uh, depending on whom Biden nominates? Do you think it's going to be bitter? Do you think it'll be nasty? Uh, Or do you think that this is all a bunch of, uh, you know, hoopla over nothing? So I think I think that kind of depends. I I think it depends on whether there seems to be um, some kind of political advantage to making a nasty spectacle for, I mean, for presumably for Senate Republicans, although I guess theoretically there could be lots of different people who are invested in a nasty spectacle. It is beyond my capacity at this point to sort of psychologize either Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin. They have both voted for Biden's judicial appointees. And I think that you know, barring some kind of situation in which Biden wants to nominate somebody who's really radical, that that is likely to continue. I think that the way this seems to be kind of kicking up is to turn it into a kind of conversation about affirmative action and qualifications and race that is pretty laden with, you know, very thinly veiled racism and uh, kind of assumptions that if you choose a person of color, and specifically in this case, a black person and a black woman, that person is automatically somehow less qualified than some hypothetical unnamed person that could have had that seat. And that, I think, is a lot of the discourse around those types of questions is it quickly becomes not a real not a real question about how do we live in a diverse society, not a real question about how do we develop institutions and, and procedures that ensure fair representation, that ensure that Every American has equal access to different things, but just a conversation that allows people to kind of showboat around racial appeals. I also think that one of the things we get at here is not just is not just the way that race works in our politics, but also the fact that the idea of there's one really qualified person for this seat and we can objectively measure that person's qualifications and there's no trade-offs and that 
that that one person exists is sort of absurd. And it gets to some of the structural structural questions people have raised about the court, its, its sort of size and power and stature. But also, I think it kind of it gets us at these questions, as as Lee put it, of powerlessness as people think about, well, there's all this power invested in these nine people. How do we ensure that 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 is getting distributed. And because there is no ideological change in the distribution, I think that the change in the way that that power might be distributed among people of different background characteristics, race, race and gender, that that will become the debate about who has power. But I don't know that there's all that many procedural points at which that debate can become what some of the other debates have become in our recent political history or in the, the Biden presidency of, you know, who can who can block it? Will it be blocked? Will it, you know, will it be stalled out? These sorts of things. I think it'll proceed in a fairly normal fashion, but even by 21st century standards, maybe an abnormally level of nasty debate. Well, when you make power scarce, it becomes that much more precious. But, you know, I mean, the, the question of who is qualified to be a Supreme Court justice, lots of people are qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And you know, here, here's the other thing about Supreme Court justices is that they hand off a lot of work to their clerks. And then the clerks do a lot of the work of judging. They rely on amicus briefs. Uh, and so, again, it, it fosters this idea of there's some like brilliant person who's going to divine the true nature of the law, as opposed to this idea that, you know, no, no judging is politics and politics is bringing people from different perspectives together to have a shared understanding. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of lament, I really, actually, I do really lament the fact that we don't have politicians on the Supreme Court anymore like we used to, which is, you know, I, I don't think Kamala Harris for, for Supreme Court is going to go anywhere. But I would like somebody who who hasn't spent their entire life in the, the airy world of of you know law schools and law reviews and courtrooms and has you know spent some time actually dealing with the realities of of politics i mean you, you read some of these decisions that these justices write particularly i mean i you know mostly pretty much exclusively only only look very closely at the issues around democracy money and politics you know districting and a lot of this stuff is written like somebody who has no understanding of politics. So like, how do you weigh in on the rules of democracy without having a, a real feel for politics? How, how do you weigh, how do you engage in the kind of realities of what is a political branch when you're, you're so far removed from politics? It's actually, it's like Larry Kramer has written a lot on this and he has a fabulous book on the history of judicial review called The People Themselves where he outlines his uh, and details his kind of theory of popular constitutionalism. But what you've seen here is that there is this notion that the law is no longer something that, that, that the people have access to, right? It's something that comes from on high. It's something that only experts have. It's kind of like the guy who comes to fix your Wi-Fi, which is basically magic, is if you ask me, right? I have no idea how to fix my Wi-Fi. If I unplug it and turn it back on and it still doesn't work, I got to call some guy. I'll, fi I'll fix it for you, James. Uh, well, then, so you maybe you're now qualified to be the Wi-Fi guy. But he shows up 
And then like, I'm like, wow, this is great. But that's not the way that the law works. And that's not the way that the Constitution works. And it's not the way that it, it's meant to work. Because basically, the Constitution outlines the limits to government and gives government powers in some areas. Now, if you give one part of that government the ability to then decide what those limits are and what those powers are, and then you make that part of the government unaccountable because they serve for life. I mean, we can impeach them, I guess. And then all of a sudden you see that you get this really, and it's very opaque. It's not very transparent. And it, you get it's like a recipe for kind of like illegitimacy and disaster the more the court pushes. And I think historically, and I would like to ask Julie about this, historically, the court, when it's pushed too far, the people have kind of reacted and the court has kind of then moved back a little bit. In your thinking, Julie, does that seem like is something that we might see again in the future? Or where are we heading? Bring us home, Julia. Oh, man. Okay. So... I'm reaching into okay the depths of, of studying this in APD classes in grad school, but right, I mean you have this argument, like you have this Bruce Ackerman argument about um about constitutional moments, um, and these kind of changes in the broader thinking of the of the country, and he identifies this around the Civil War and then around the the New Deal. Um, that's often one of the cases people think of when they think of court being pushed back upon by one of the elected branches, in this case, by the president trying to get Congress to pack the court um, in 1937. And then the idea that the court responded to that threat by changing their rulings on the New Deal. People have really different views about what actually happened there and whether that was actually the story. So that, that there, that's one perspective. In terms of where we're going, you know, I do think that John Roberts has shown some investment in in the court's reputation, but that his his sort of tipping point on that is really different from where I think certainly where liberals would want it to be, which isn't surprising, but maybe is really far from from where it would need to be to sort of produce decisions that seem to meaningfully go beyond partisan politics and specifically to go beyond some questions out there in the world about partisan politics and kind of the mechanisms of democracy. So so Roberts has been willing to side with liberals on some issues, but not on voting rights, for example. Um, and that's a really big one. And I am with I share the view with many people at this point that the Shelby v. Holder 2013 decision was a much more important turning point for American democracy than Citizens United although the court certainly is out of step with public opinion on campaign finance. But I think Robert sort of cares about that. I think Barrett sort of seems to, to care about that or maybe be aware that her legitimacy is a little bit precarious. And the court held very, very steady during um, the aftermath of the 2020 election on those types of questions, on challenges to the election results. But I just don't know going forward. I could see that dynamic playing out as it has played out. Or I could see it playing out as more recent things have played out, which is that once people get power, they just hang on to it. So like a lot of things, I can sort of see a critical juncture coming up where we could we could have a real departure from past practices. Yeah, I see a critical juncture, too. And you know, while you were talking about Bruce Ackerman, I was thinking something in the pizza in New Haven, because I was thinking about Jack Balkin's uh, recent, I guess from 2019 piece, the recent unpleasantness, understanding the cycle of constitutional time. Actually, I think he, I think he turned that into a book. 
which is, of course, based upon the Skoranek cycle. So I guess everybody thinks that time is circular. I also think that time is circular. Uh, and you know, I think there are a ton of... You're correct that pizza is a substitute for water. In yes. Ukraine. Well, you, you need water to make pizza, apparently. Apparently, it's the water that makes the pizza good, right? So the idea is that it, things that can't feel like they can't go on forever don't go on. And and something has to break in American politics one way or the other. And so like the, the idea that this is somehow this regime of how we do the Supreme Court and the courts is going to go in permanently, that's probably not going to happen. Things could go in a lot of different directions as they always can during, you know, sort of these these times of, of disintegration and, and dissolution of the old order. But something will be different. Uh, I think, or I, I hope, because it seems like the direction that we're going in is just making everybody unhappy and, and contributing to illegitimacy in one way. And, and if we don't do something about it, it's basically going to be the, the, the end of this, this republic. So I'm all for a new cycle. Wow, that's a really uplifting way to end the show, Lee. Thanks for that. You know, what will be different and how it will be different is up for grabs, but I do agree with both of you that it will be different. And politics has a way to keep going. The people will ultimately voice their displeasure if the court starts doing things they don't like. Maybe they'll even push Congress to do something uh, on their behalf, as it was originally designed to do. Maybe the president will decide to take action into his or her hands and to disregard the court, perhaps, and then to trigger this large national debate over why we have a court, what the purpose of the court is, and how best to safeguard the court's legitimacy to perform that purpose. I think that debate is very important. I think it's one that we desperately need to have. And I think that we need some sort of big disagreement to ultimately trigger that. And I keep thinking we're, we're there, but then we're not. And so maybe, maybe will be there in the future. But I do agree with you that something will, in fact, be different. So do you want to end on a more optimistic note, Lee? I'm going to give you another opportunity. I was just going to say I was looking forward to the moment in which uh, the president says Justice Roberts has made his decision. Let him go and force it. <laughs> well, there you go. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.